Many people start their evening by asking their loved ones how their day was. I've always loved asking that to my dad. Hearing dad talk about work is especially fascinating to me, because his 9 to 5 was fairly unique. His job was keeping astronauts alive. Eventually, I decided to start recording some of his best work stories. Here are those stories as My Dad Built Spaceships. Hello, and thank you for listening to this first episode of My Dad Built Spaceships. Yay! <laughs> this has been a project that I've kind of had in mind for a long time now, and finally making it a reality. Pretty exciting. As this is the first episode of this podcast, I figured a little bit of an explanation before I kind of tee up the episode itself, I should probably explain the podcast a little bit. So, my dad spent his entire professional career working on spaceships. You know, I mean, the, the name spaceships, we sort of associate with uh, science fiction and flying saucers, but, you know, the Apollo space capsules or the space shuttle or the Soyuz spacecraft from Russia, those are all spaceships. So, my dad built spaceships. <laughs> he primarily spent his career working on the space shuttle. He was an engineer working and providing engineering information to the technicians that would do the work directly on the space shuttle. He started that work prior to the first launch. Not He wasn't involved with the initial design early on, but he started working prior to the first launch and continued working all the way until the space shuttle's retirement. And then he was doing other work as well after that. He was working on a new spacecraft called the CST-100. So as a kid growing up, this was kind of awesome to me. <laughs> it was neat, you know, knowing that dad was working on spacecraft. I mean, that was his nine to five. His, his job was keeping astronauts alive. And I think that uh, you get a different sense of the possible and impossible when your dad's nine to five is keeping astronauts alive. So that was neat. Uh, and also kind of created some neat opportunities in that I had him come to my fourth grade class and deliver a presentation. And I felt like a total baller. <laughs> yeah, it was it was fun to, you know, he just brought some slides and talked. Was a total nerd about it. He had like a piece of the tile from one of the space shuttles and he was able to kind of pass that around the class. And that was pretty neat. But maybe even more cool was, you know, kind of my thoughts on his work as I became an adult. Certainly, I think his work was responsible for me building a love of space and space travel and that, you know, I think astronomy's fascinating. Going to other planets is an exciting thing. Uh, I'd love to experience zero G someday. That's just, it's, I think it's cool. And I think a lot of that probably comes from both his work and from the two of us watching some sci-fi stuff together when we were younger. But as I got older and I understood more of the science involved, I found it just incredibly fascinating, all the work. But it's also really funny. Dad's job was an environmental control and life support systems engineer. So again, that means his job was to make sure that the astronauts stayed alive. But one of the pieces of equipment that he was responsible for, almost completely and primarily early on in his career, but it evolved to be more broad scope later on, but was the space toilet. <laughs> 
And I got to tell you, when astronauts don't train to use a space toilet, it's crappy. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, just kind of understanding a lot of the, um, you know, and talking about the day to day, I found it funny. And I hope that you do too. I've always loved these kind of stories. I love getting data to share the stories with me and with friends. It's always a good time. And when I could get him to share stories with friends, that, that's that's always been great. In June of 2018, my grandmother passed away. And that kind of lit a fire under me to take action on an idea I had for a while, which was that I should record some of the stories that I share with Dad. I should, uh, you know, commit them to a recording so that I have them available you know, and I've always wanted to make it a podcast and now I'm doing that, but I figured even if nothing else, it would be a great uh, little thing for future generations of my own family to listen to. But I do hope that you you enjoy these as well. And so, yeah, here we are. Here it is as a podcast. Fantastic. So this first episode is certainly not the first one we recorded. We recorded this on... The 9th of September in 2018. He's not talking about anything particularly early. He's actually talking about... We talked mostly, I think, about work he was doing with CST100. Which was basically the work he was doing at that point in time. on the, In September in 2018. I like this episode a lot. It's one of my favorite episodes. In it, we talked about how they were doing testing for that new spacecraft CST100. And I just found it hilarious there. <laughs> you know, how do you test a new spacecraft to make sure it's safe for people to be in it? As it turns out, there's some special places especially built for that. But those places will kill you. <laughs> That's my description for this episode. And it's absolutely apt. I like this episode. I think it does a good job of kind of showing you what the podcast will be. You know, in many of the episodes, this is the sort of style. It's also, I think, personally, one of the funniest. Not the funniest, but one of. And it really sets the stakes for things, though, too. Because, you know, if the men and women involved with this work didn't get it right, people would die. That's the truth of it, you know? That And it could be <laughs> quite dramatic. And certainly it was. There'll be another episode where we do talk about accidents that happen with the space shuttle. But not only accidents that happen, and that was tragic, of course, but also... Instances where there were issues, and they were able to make it work despite the issues. Kind of a mini, smaller, less high-stakes Apollo 13 moment. We'll talk about that in one of the later episodes. So, yeah, that's this. That's the pod in general. I hope that you enjoy it. Thank you. Hi. Hello. How you doing? I'm good. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. I can retire. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody else has to live through all this mess. <laughs> Something I learned this week <laughs> is that when we originally proposed this spacecraft, <laughs> we we're going to build it and do acceptance tests on it and then put it on top of the rocket and fly it in a orbital flight test <laughs> without anybody on it. To make sure it functioned okay. And then we're going to put crew on it. Well, NASA had a better idea. And they chose to implement an Air Force specifications associated with satellites. And 
when you're building a satellite, you want to make sure it works because you're not bringing it back. So in the satellite thinking, you do environmental testing on it on the ground. Well, not only are you not bringing it back, but you there's almost no opportunity to fix it on orbit. You know, right. it needs to work. So, whereas this is something that yeah, especially when you're doing your first flight, and if there's something wrong, you could be like, oh well, shit, I mean, you know, and bring it back and fix it. Right. right. So we have a test program that includes what the Air Force does for satellite testing on this vehicle. So fundamentally, the the idea is to test it for every different extreme condition that exists in the vacuum of space. No, not just that. No. Okay. We have, we're going to take the whole vehicle and the service module mm-hmm. and we're going to put it in an acoustic chamber <laughs> right. to, to shake it to simulate launch. Okay. 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 All right. Let, <laughs> okay. How roughly how big is the vehicle? Roughly how big? Hmm. About 15 feet in diameter, about 10 feet high for the capsule. The service module is another 10 feet high. So 15 feet diameter at the base. It's it's conical, so yeah. but 10 feet tall, smaller diameter at the at the top, and then cylindrical service module below the conical vehicle itself. Yeah. And the service module is 10 feet tall and 15 feet in diameter. Diameter. That's kind of big. Yeah. You need some big chambers to do anything. Yeah. You need 20 foot. 20 foot tall, well, 20 foot plus. I mean, I thought with all the tests, is it supposed to be stacked vertically? Mm-hmm. Okay, so you need more than 20 feet tall, and you need more than, you know. More than 15 feet in diameter. Mm-hmm. And to get it into some of the test fixtures, we have to take it apart a little <laughs> bit to put it in and then put it back together. Cool. All right, so acoustic chamber. I'm envisioning a room with a rock concert. It's a room with a very, very big speaker. Yeah. And the, has anyone done the brown note test in there? <laughs> brown note test. <laughs> that was what Mythbusters trying to find like a, a specific wavelength that makes your bowels lose control. <laughs> <laughs> Not to my knowledge. <laughs> anyway. I have teased the Dynamics guys unmercifully since the beginning of this program. Because they want us to be able to tolerate between 140 decibels to 160 decibels at 20 to 40 hertz. Probably doesn't mean a whole lot to you. I definitely know 140 to 160 is damn loud. Uh, That's damn loud. And down at 20 to 40 hertz, your body starts to feel it. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty low frequency. That's that's very bassy. That's is that even busy. in the audible range? It's in the audible range. The audible range starts about 20 dB, I believe. But about 20 hertz. 20 hertz. Right, okay. That 140 to 160 dB, you're going to feel it rather than hear it. Right. Those kind of noise levels are typically... Well, and the shuttle, they're reserved for the back end of the vehicle. When you say you're going to feel it, I'm just trying to think, like, if anyone hasn't... If you've, if you've been, been a, to a rock concert and you felt the 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 bass kind the of bass, yeah, hit it, yeah, yeah, kind that's, of, that's kind what of we're hit talk- your chest, right? Well, this will hit your chest, and you'll feel it in your chest and stomach. Yeah. Okay, that and works. It it's huge, and normally those kinds of frequencies and energies 
on shuttle anyway, were reserved for the rear end of the vehicle, and we're at the top of the vehicle. And it seems to me a bit absurd to have these kind of energies and frequencies at the top of the vehicle because you're running away from that noise <laughs> all the time. But that's what we're doing. That's um, a good point, too. Like, yeah, I mean, acoustics is irrelevant in orbit. Acoustics is irrelevant in orbiting. Acoustics is what generates the vibration of the vehicle during launch. And it's something that affects a launch vehicle up to about 200,000 feet altitude. So if you launched, like, if hypothetically I drop a rocket off of the side of the International Space Station, I drop it, quote-unquote, it would never really experience vibrations? Depends upon the stability of the rocket. That's wild. Okay. If you had a rocket that burns very stable, it would not. Wow. But there is a tendency to have the rocket pulsate a little bit. Interesting. That was one of the advantages of a hydrogen oxygen or a kerosene oxygen engine is that you could get it to where it didn't have too many oscillations if you Pretty smooth. tweaked it a lot. <laughs> yeah, and so, yeah, just to put a point on it yeah the reason why there's not or sound is irrelevant in orbit as we're kind of discussing is because sound needs a medium to travel through you have to generally i mean we're used to sound traveling through air but you sound can also travel through water travels faster through water yeah but it has to travel through something and in the vacuum of space where there's no air there's there's nothing for sound to travel through right so so on orbit if you burn a rocket the only medium if you will for transmission of those vibrations is through the structure of the rocket itself right and if you can get the engine to burn smooth enough you don't get that that's pretty well that's pretty neat but so these guys want to take your rocket down to a rock concert yeah <laughs> so the first test we're going to do spaceship not your rocket but still. first thing we're going to do is put it in an acoustic chamber and shout at it shout at it. yeah <laughs> shout Shout. We're going to run it Let for it all out. Two and a half minutes at uh, three dB higher than we expect. All right. So that we can show that we can deal with the acoustic environment. Cool. Then after we do that, we're going to take it out of the acoustic chamber. Yeah, yeah that's part one. That's, and then, then you take it apart again so that you can get it back out of the chamber. <laughs> you take it apart a little bit so you can get it out of the chamber. Go take it to the next chamber. Go take it to the thermal vacuum chamber. Uh-huh. So you can expose it to the vacuum uh, as nearly as possible of space uh-huh. and the cold and hot temperatures that you can get on orbit. That's that's a hell of a chamber. So, yeah. Someone's got some really, you know, crazy death chambers here, man. <laughs> I guess these chambers were built by Boeing. Yeah? To support satellite business. Wow. Apparently, we own them, which is kind of bizarre. Because typically, when you're working cost-plus contracts on, on Department of Defense satellites, you have them pay for the test chambers. Yeah, but here's the thing. Like, who? <laughs> sure, I guess. I mean, maybe they could be chambers at some military base or something, but... Who the hell? Like who? Like, they probably had to be purpose built for this. You know, you can't you can't go to the store and be like, hey, 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 I need no, a no. thermal vacuum chamber that could fit a twenty five foot by fifteen diameter uh, vehicle. You got one of those? 
<laughs> Sorry, we're fresh out. You know? <laughs> they are purpose-built chambers for the testing of satellites and, and aircraft. What's the- Air Force has some cold and hot chambers for aircraft, mm-hmm. but they don't have the They're vacuum, not vacuum, chambers, vacuum yeah. chambers. The acoustic chambers for this level of energy mm-hmm. is extremely limited. Apparently, Boeing owns one and Bell... Uh, Wiley Labs owns one. Wiley, okay. So Wiley got purchased by somebody else recently. Not sure I know that name, but the Wiley Labs did a test where they tried to do the 140 dB at 20 hertz, and they successfully achieved that test one time. Mm-hmm. They said we're not going to do this anymore because they lost part of the test chamber. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's wild. What do they build these chambers out of? Concrete block. The vacuum? Okay, it's but the, the, the acoustic. The acoustic one is it's concrete block. But it but it, that much sound energy can that damage a concrete block wall. Yes, that's pretty wild. No, it's 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 a, it's a minor wave. earthquake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A, you're you're really exposing to a minor earthquake. It's a very significant shock wave. You know, uh, the what the, the vacuum chamber is typically a big metal t- chamber of some nature. Yeah, and it is. They're built, I don't know how to say this. I'm going to say hell for stout. <laughs> Super strong. <laughs> because there is always a concern of the chamber itself imploding. Oh, yeah. That'd be that'd be bad. And, and it, it's not a nice thing. No. <laughs> it doesn't go well. Oh, right. I've seen like like tinker trucks or whatever yeah. like implode. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the situation was where that occurred. But like, holy cow. They're like, boom. <laughs> it's like, and, I don't even know how to describe it. Yeah. It is, yeah. I mean, it's like you're watching an explosion in reverse. And, and quite frequently, it will continue beyond implosion and go back out again. Oh, really? And yeah. That's that, a bad when, day. When you get big enough. What causes that? The energy of the sides coming in and colliding against each other. Oh, man. You've got this thing that's at least 15 feet in diameter. Right, right, right. As it explodes, the sides are going to come in quickly. Right, so then they hit each other, and then they like they Take bounce off. off each other again. Yeah. With a lot of force. Well, yeah. yeah. That's, that's insane. That's a bad day. Yes. So, the vacuum chambers are typically made help first out. On the inside of the vacuum chamber, they will have what we call cold balls. And in case of the one we're using, they're putting liquid nitrogen through the cold walls. What the cold wall is basically is a bunch of tubes to run liquid nitrogen through, and liquid nitrogen provides the cold. If you really want to get high tech, you put liquid helium in it, but that costs a lot of money. (laughs) (laughs) Does the liquid nitrogen get... I guess the liquid nitrogen probably wouldn't actually get the chamber as cold as the vacuum of space, would it? No, it does not, but... It gets you cold enough to where you can yeah. then build your your analysis story, if you will, as to why it'll be okay. And real quick, like not including the cold wall, roughly how thick are the walls of this uh, vacuum chamber? I don't have a good answer because I've not been there yet. But Probably quite The thick. chambers I've been to, the, the biggest one I was in or exposed to was in Johnson Space Center. And it was a 60-foot diameter chamber. <sighs> the walls were about six inches thick. Of just solid metal? Just solid metal. you imagine the welds that go into that? How do you weld together six-inch thick pieces of metal? <laughs> Very carefully. <laughs> wow. 
I don't know if they still use that chamber at Johnson Space Center, but it was huge. The, so we got our cold walls. You got cold walls, and then you also put in cow rod heaters, which are very much like the heaters on an electric stove. Right, okay. To provide your hot source for your hot conditions. How hot does this one get, do you know? That's a reasonable question. I don't know how hot it can get. How hot are you getting it up to? I think we're driving it up to a radiative surface of about 500 degrees. Radiated surface? Does that mean like the hot wall itself? The hot wall itself. Okay. 500 degrees. Yeah. I'm telling gonna, you, this is, they got all sorts of really nasty death chambers, man. <laughs> okay. So we're going to put it in this chamber. We're going to expose it to the coldest environment we can get to. Mm-hmm. Then we're going to expose it to the hottest environment we can get to. Which is how cold? A liquid nitrogen. What what temperature is liquid nitrogen at? Minus 180F, I think it is. Minus 180 degrees Fahrenheit. And then you and then so after you do that, you'll turn that off and flick on the ovens and uh, uh, turn oven. it up to five hundred degrees. And try to cook it to five hundred degrees. <laughs> and then we're going to have try to have one side of the vacuum chamber be cold and the other side is hot, which is more typical of what we expect to fly in, because we're gonna have the earth on one side all the time. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, when you're up up in orbit, which is exciting to think about. When you're up in orbit, yeah, the Earth side of your vehicle can be very cold. The Earth side of the vehicle is going to see roughly about 40 degrees to 50 degrees Fahrenheit. Fahrenheit. And, but the sun-facing side. Sun-facing side sees the sun. Mm-hmm. And where it doesn't see the sun, it sees absolute zero. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to try to get one side hot and one side cold to simulate that. All the time, we're going to be running the systems. Yeah, all the, all the, everything in your spaceship is going to be on space, during this time. Yeah, everything in the spaceship is going to be on during this time. But no, if something goes haywire, we'll have a problem because this particular chamber takes days to pump down and days to bring it back up to atmospheric. Yeah. Then after we're done with all that, we're going to take it out of this chamber and put it in another chamber for electromagnetic. All right. Interference testing. Right, yeah. EMI. I had to remember what I was. Sorry. Mm-hmm. And that's where we expose the vehicle to near lightning conditions to see what the avionics do or don't do. Again, some really exciting death chambers. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they are. First, I will put them with a explosion. <laughs> Then I will freeze them and cook them at the same time. <laughs> Finally, if that didn't do it to the spaceship, I will expose to lightning. Go and get a few jig-up sliders going. Yeah. This is the typical test process that the Air Force and Department of Defense imposes upon satellites. Every satellite that they've put up in the last couple decades has been through all this. Every first design of a satellite has been through this. Well, at least everyone that Boeing builds. Everyone Boeing builds and everyone that anybody else builds has to go through this. So does this, everyone else use Boeing's chambers, presumably? Or some other folks have chambers like this, too? I don't know who has a noise chamber who will do this other than Wiley Labs. The thermal vacuum chamber. Mm-hmm. There's one at Johnson Space Center and there's one up at uh, Lewis Research Center. Is that another NASA facility? That's another NASA facility. And we 
looked into using that one rather than the Boeing facility. When we asked to use it, they said, sure, come on up. We'll just, as long as you update all of our data systems, we'll, we'll be happy to, to, to have you use it. Mm, no, thanks. <laughs> I understand Elon Musk on SpaceX is using the chambers up in Lewis Research Center. Hmm. Now, there, I know there are some environmental chambers owned by the Department of Defense, Air Force in particular. I don't know what level of vacuum chambers they have. I would assume that they have some chambers that can go down to 40,000 feet altitude equivalent. But I don't know if they have any that will go to zero. And then the electromagnetic interference is something that can be done at ambient so that I wouldn't be surprised if the Air Force or Department of Defense has those chambers. That's pretty wild. So we're going to put it in these three different death chambers. We're, we're trying to get our vehicle ready to go into these three different death chambers. Okay, I'm glad you're on board with death chambers. I was just thinking, should I not call them that? But like, well, all right. I mean, let's be real. Shit would kill you. It would kill people. Any one of those things would kill you. Yes. That's why you have to have your spaceship. Mm-hmm. Protect them people inside from all this crazy stuff. No. We have shipped our service module to OR. Test facilities for these were built in El Segundo, which I'm... I mean, if you're going to invest money, why would you invest in Southern California? It's going to cost you tons of money to operate it there. But that's where Boeing chose to do it. And it may have been a vestige of the Rockwell Corporation having some satellite contracts when Boeing purchased it. But the service module is already down at El Segundo. They're trying to get it ready for testing. And we're also trying to get the crew module, the pressurized vessel, ready to be shipped down to El Segundo. And we're having a challenge right now in what we typically do as we build up something, whether it be a avionics box or, in this case, a crew module. And when you have the build complete, then you go through a series of tests to see if it operates as you had expected it. We call that an acceptance test. Mm-hmm. Well, we're having a little trouble with the build, so we started doing an acceptance test before we got the build done. Mm-hmm. And it is making for a interesting level of communication within the group there the management is pushing the test team about why aren't you done with testing the test team says well i've tested what's here and the production team wants to say well we can't go any farther until they get done with test and (laughs) (laughs) three days last week who's on first (laughs) <laughs> Three days last week, they were doing the installation and trimming or tooling on the hatch. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. so you're, you're opening and closing the hatch. Mm-hmm. That says nobody can be inside because you can't put somebody inside a closed chamber and, and meet the requirements of OSHA. Is mm. when you have something and in, somebody inside, you're supposed to have an air duct going in. So for three days. No work can be done on the inside. No testing can be done. Because they're working on the door. Because they're working on the door. 
limited work can be done on the outside. Well, that's kind of reasonable, but, you know, yeah. Slowing it, things down. It, it has made things interesting for people that are like me. They ask, when are we going to get such and such done? Well, we can't go into the crew module right now, so we can't get it done. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, things are getting a little tense at work right now. Let's talk about, real quick, this is sort of a, a tangent from the, the testing theme. You build things up, and then you go test them. You said the... I mean, you're building a few of the different vehicles. So one of them is on its way out to California, and there's been some issues during transit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. We would, I don't need to spend a ton of time on this, but I do think it's sort of funny, some of the issues in transit. Because I, I think it's just interesting, like, you know, the spaceships, the final frontier, but there's some real, like, nuts and bolts challenges that, like, have oh. occurred <laughs> that no one would think of, you know? Yeah, the the service module goes into a box, and the crew module goes into a box. The box is sixteen by sixteen. Sixteen feet by sixteen feet, and like a lane on a highway is typically ten feet. <laughs> yep. So when we're talking box, like a wooden crate or what? It's a reusable wooden crate. It's been fiberglassed on the outside, so the water can't penetrate. And, Smart. But it's a big wooden white box. Right. 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 So, it goes on a flatbed. Right. And, so and you, it's a wide load. Uh, yep. Takes two lanes. Yep. <laughs> One's going down the road. Yep. And the state of Texas doesn't allow you to drive these wide loads on their interstates. <laughs> and it's, it, it was built in here in Florida? Yeah. Right. And it needs to go out to California for all these crazy death chambers. Yes. Right. <laughs> so the first vehicle we sent out was what we called our structural test article, which we ran through some acoustic testing. We also ran through what was called shock testing. The structural test article was fundamentally like just, it was a lot of the features and the design of the capsule, but without maybe like avionics and that sort of thing. Is that- no, no avionics. Uh, had weight simulators for the avionics. Mm-hmm. Okay. We didn't need to put the outer mold line on it for those particular tests. I don't know what an outer mold line is, but okay. Oh. <laughs> But that's fine. The the, the stain the, the sheet metal on the back, outside of a car is the outer mold line. Oh. Outer mold line. Gotcha. You didn't uh, make it look pretty. We didn't make it look pretty. Yeah. But and it was good enough for, for... For the initial acoustic and shock testing. For the initial death chambers. <laughs> yes. Wait, wait. Shock testing. Well, yeah. We are not doing shock testing on the flight vehicles. We did shock testing on the structural test article. Well, that sounds fun. What's shock testing? The easiest representation is you push something off the table and let it hit the floor. <laughs> <laughs> so you figured the lightning and the heat and the cold and the vacuum and the explosion sound chamber, that wasn't enough. We better throw this thing off a cliff, too. <laughs> Basically, yeah. <laughs> what was the shock testing life? I mean, how, how, I mean, it wasn't actually a table. It was, I mean, it could have been just, you know, the countertop. There, there it's is a, six, a, there is a way vehicle. to do shock testing on vibration tables. If there's enough movement in the vibration table where you just yeah. take it from and suddenly accelerate it. Good Lord, though. I mean, that's a big they, vibration table. Uh, this, yeah. I'm not certain how they pull off the shock test on this vehicle. One of our sources of shock on this vehicle is the separation bolts from the crew module from the service module. 
So, yeah, I remember you told me, this one was years ago, actually, <laughs> but you said there is an instance where that occurs, where those explosive bolts go, mm-hmm. and it, yeah, it separates the crew module from the service module, and for a brief instance, parts of the crew module are subject to 50 Gs. Yeah. <laughs> Which is wild. Obviously, a G is one force of gravity, right? And let's put this into context. Like, if you're on a roller coaster, you might, might hit like three or four Gs. Mm, yeah. That's that's what I've seen. Fighter pilots with G suits, you know, which like compress their legs so that the blood doesn't pull in their legs, they, they generally hit like nine, nine and a half Gs for like a second or two. 50 Gs. 50, like 50 times acceleration of gravity. It's a very, very short impulse. That's why it's called shock. Mm-hmm. But it, well, it's like hitting a hammer against something. It causes a 50G load in a, a particular vicinity that's carried throughout, carried and dampened throughout the vehicle. Mm-hmm. The crew would never see th- this. Yeah, when you first 50Gs, but. when you first told me this 50G scenario, so I mean, you told me the story, and somebody wanted to test the vehicle with this 50Gs, and I said, why? If you hit 50 Gs, you're done. Yep, the, you're much done. The crew's done. <laughs> Forget it. But again, you told me that this is, it's very instantaneous. It's actually only part of the vehicle that's subject to it, blah, 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 blah. And this is actually part of the freaking design. So like this is happening. Yep. And, and okay. So that blew my mind. But then there was an issue with trying to test that, which is how? <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. How that's in the world do you test a 50? Yeah. And we were discussing that and we couldn't figure it out. Like, I think what they did is actually used the explosive bolts to, inter- to inject the shock with a 20% overload on the pyros, which is standard process for the pyrotechnics. So if you crash your car, if you're going 70 miles per hour and you crash into like a brick wall, <laughs> that is 28 G's. For Where'd point- you find that? I Googled it. That's the interwebs. <laughs> so for 0. 0.04 seconds, you'll hit 28 Gs. So 50 Gs. Mm-hmm. And that's like, I'm, yeah, I mean, it's bad. It's a big deal. So they use, they actually use the explosive bolts to sort of simulate I believe the- they used the explosive bolts and overcharged the pyrotechnics to simulate that. And well, that yeah, if you're going to get a 50G load, one of the ways to do it is with an explosion. That's right. <laughs> There's not a lot of other options. Like <laughs> We are putting significant amount of dampening mounts into the vehicle design because of the shock. That is wild. Okay, cool. That was tangent to the tangent. Getting back to the first tangent, we, we have the service module going down the road... Oh, we have the service module. Well, on the first vehicle, we had the service module in a box. <laughs> it was 16 feet wide, two lanes. <laughs> Texas, being the way they are, they'll let you drive on the interstates with these. So you have to use side roads. <laughs> so our first little challenge is that the truck driver did not move the truck adequately over to the center of the road and picked up a guardrail on the box on the right side. He smashed your service module into the guardrail on the side of the road. Smashed the box. <laughs> Didn't destroy it, but he did hit the guardrail. Yeah. Do you have any idea how fast he was going at that time? I don't recall. I, For certain, I think somebody was saying 35, 40. Maybe I should Google what the G-load is on that, too. Maybe you saved yourself a test. You're like, <laughs> no, just kidding. We had a 
device in the box <laughs> measured G loads of the vehicle over time. Oh, really? And that shock was higher than what we anticipated for the flight. For really? Really. Oh, man. Whoops. <laughs> okay. It's a little bit farther down the road in Texas. <laughs> <laughs> How badly was the box damaged? Do you know? Oh, not significantly. Would you like duct tape? We did have to replace a board or two, but it wasn't punctured, if you will. So you stop on the side of the road and you fix that shit? Or? <laughs> oh, okay. Continue on down the road with canvas over it. Yeah. A little bit farther down the road in Texas. It's a truck that has obviously got a load on it that's quite wide. Mm-hmm. The whole box is white. Mm-hmm. The truck has flags. It's got flushing lights. Somebody ran into the uh, the left side of the box. <laughs> Somebody drove their car into the box containing the service module for your yes. spaceship. <laughs> and you didn't you didn't design for this? We didn't design for people <laughs> running into the <laughs> <laughs> running into the box. That wasn't part of your shock test? <laughs> no. Both of these exceeded the shocks that we anticipated having in flight. Uh then in the most well, recent, which isn't to say that they exceeded the fifty Gs, but they 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 made the service module as a whole. Well, actually, when the service module disconnects, you don't really care about the fifty Gs on it because it's disconnecting. No, when it's disconnected, we're done with it. Yep. Anyway, yeah, yeah. Got in a car crash, and it turns out it was worse than going to space. Yeah. <laughs> in a most recent shipment to California. We this box we have this thing mounted on the flatbed that is a generator and an air conditioning unit that air conditions the box. Okay. Most recent opportunity to go to California. Right. Truck drivers uh, would notice that it was getting a little hot outside. This is probably August, yeah. July yeah. or August. This is this is tech, this was in Arizona now, right? Arizona. Right. Any. Says the uh, inside of the box here is ninety degrees. Is everybody okay with that? The air conditioner can't keep up, so we all chased down how hot we could handle it. And ninety degrees was an acceptable condition. But then when he got, what Calif- do you do if it's not an acceptable condition? Does a truck driver go to Walmart and buy a window unit and strap it to your box? I don't know what we do. <laughs> I really don't. Houston, we have you're a committed. You're in Arizona. <laughs> right. I don't have another one. <laughs> When he got to California, Arizona. Shit, shit, buy some ice. <laughs> when he got to California, Arizona. Border, Throw some dry ice in the in the box. It'll sublimate. It'll be fine. <laughs> California Patrol said, you need to park it here for a while. Oh, yeah. Because the... You're not driving this wide load in the middle of the day. No, you're not driving this large load blocking two lanes of traffic while we have evacuations in progress for fires in well, Southern Lake Cal- Elsinore. Right, okay, yeah. So, the truck driver got three days to park the vehicle at the California-Arizona de- desert while they got the fires under control. I had thought that California forced the wide loads of this nature to travel at night. Mm-hmm. But I was led to believe that it got to El Segundo at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. I must have really messed up. <laughs> a lot of people's traffic, the commutes that day. Interstate, or I, 
405 freeway. Mm -hmm. There's no way to get to or there other than 405 or the 101. Mm -hmm. Both of those are very busy. Mm -hmm. I'm very surprised that it was arrived at El Segundo at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. I mean, it, mm -hmm. it clearly blocks two lanes of traffic. Yep. Yep. That's funny. Anyway, so it's there waiting for us. I mean, us one to... guy in Texas tried to see if that wasn't true, but he found out. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely does block both lanes. <laughs> so we're trying to get the what we call the crew module ready for test right now, and our typical path is complete the vehicle, and then go do basically a functional test on everything that you install to see if it operates the way you had planned. Right. Well, Finally, getting back to testing here, <laughs> which is my fault. But test for the vehicle assembly. We started, and we were short some of the parts. Mm -hmm. So we we did the test we could do without the parts that weren't there. Mm -hmm. And now we're in a posture where things are not completed testing because the completion of the vehicle is not there. All right. One of the things I personally find annoying is that we have been running the vehicle through the test with one of two cooling loops that I'm responsible for operating. The other one's not ready to be operated. Mm -hmm. When they did some checkout on the valves in dry state on this other loop, the valves were not operating correctly. There was a short within the valve that took the power from the solenoid and put it on the 28-volt solenoid and delivered that power to the 5-volt position indicator circuit. And uh, 28 volts going through the position indicator circuit tended to be a little hard on the avionics that were looking at the indicator. So we burned up a box. Mm -hmm. So after we burned up the box... <laughs> Box was sent back to the manufacturer for rework. Who's the manufacturer? I don't recall the name of the manufacturer, but I know they're located in England. That's something we need to England, huh? At some point, we need to talk about how there's a bunch of subcontractors that create all the different little bits for your new spaceship. Mm -hmm. But we're setting up the vehicle. Yep. Go ship it to California. Yep. To go shout at it. Yep. Go. Cook it and cook it and freeze it at the same time with no air. With no air. Yep. And then Shock shoot it. sparks at it. Yep. If it makes it through all that, then we can go fly <laughs> our orbital flight test. <laughs> and then we got to take that vehicle back and refurbish it. To and I be hope ready. it doesn't get hit by another car on the way back. <laughs> <laughs> refurbish it, and that becomes the vehicle we use for the first crewed flight. Cool. And I think I'm about done for today. All right. Good talk. Hey, thank you so much for listening to this episode of My Dad Built Spaceships. I hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to learn a little bit more about the podcast or me or my dad, you can check out the website at mydadbuiltspaceships.com. You can also donate there if you'd like. We super appreciate that to kind of help us keep the podcast going, cover some of the costs uh, associated with getting it started and that sort of thing. But also just... Uh, get out there and do some science get into some stuff if you're enjoying this then i hope you're uh you know maybe checking out a museum or something like that that's uh makes the world a better place thanks again <laughs>